0: the standard of righteousness. And he wrapped up chapter 5 last week with this very clear definition of righteousness, which was very encouraging to our hearts. You know, Jesus, how do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God? And he said, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how how'd y'all do last week? You know, you heard that. You said, all right, I'm going to go do that. No, we, we see that we're desperately disqualified from the kingdom, when we read Matthew chapter 5, but for the overwhelming grace of our father sending his son who was raised that we might walk in newness of life. That's what we've been talking about. But now here in chapter 6, Jesus turns the conversation slightly, talking not just about the righteous behavior commanded of his people, but more so the heart behind that righteous behavior. Our text is really in two sections today. The first half is verse 1, which introduces the theme to much of chapter 6, kind of initiates this turn in Jesus' focus. Uh, And Jesus is going to say, it's great to do God's commandments. It's great to obey God. That's awesome. Yay, Christianity. However, what's just as important is the reason behind why you do what God commands, what your motivation is, specifically what reward you're trying to gain. And then he narrows in on specific examples. He narrows in on what motivates his disciples in today's text to give to the poor and what motivates their prayers, next week's text, and what motivates their fasting. These are the standard practices of righteousness in Jewish culture. And Jesus thinks the practices are great so long as the reason behind why his disciples are doing them is appropriate. So that's going to be the next few weeks. But like I said, this text is sort of in two sections. So I'm going to start by talking about verse 1 for a long time. I'll be talking about that, giving us this big overview of chapter 6. It's going to be a long time. You're going to say, are we still on chapter 1 or verse 1? And I'll say, yes. You go, really still? And I'll say, yes. And that'll be a long time. And then we'll get into verses 2 through 4, which is about the heart behind the rewards you're seeking when you're giving to the poor, specifically. And here, if I can give the focus of the sermon, Here are the questions being asked by our passage today. I always like to do this, sort of give you the answer at the beginning. And I think for the next few weeks, the question is, what reward are you chasing? What reward are you chasing? Jesus is going to assume today that everyone who's obeying the commands of God is seeking a reward. The reason that anyone practices righteousness is to be rewarded. But what reward are you chasing? We'll see there's two options two rewards you can strive for as you obey the commands of God and live as he is commanded. Number one, the reward of public recognition and then the reward of your heavenly father. You can give to the poor so that you can gain public recognition so everyone will know you're a righteous person and applaud you or you can give to the poor so that you can have the reward of your heavenly father. Same behavior, same action, same righteous behavior, but radically different motivations. And though you and I judge by outward appearances, God judges by the heart. And the heart chasing the reward of public recognition will never find rest, but the heart that seeks the Father will find rest. So that's what we're going to dive into today. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into our text. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are an overwhelmingly gracious Father, that you have adopted us as your own, you call us sons and daughters, that we can come to you in in need, uh, that we can come to you for, for grace, for sustenance, for endurance, for all that we need. I pray that we would indeed come to you, not to lesser idols or anything like that. We confess that we need you. I pray that you would teach us to confess that we need you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So like I said, our text is in two parts, okay? Verse 1, introduction of much of what follows in chapter 6, and then I'll spend some time uh, to verses 2 through 4, which is more of a specific application of verse 1. But verse 1 says, "'Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven.'" Jesus begins, he's warning his disciples. He says, beware, beware of obeying God's commands in order to be seen by other people. Beware, don't do it. It's not worth it. Now, I want to spend some time trying to get into the mind of Jesus's audience as they hear this warning. Because Jesus is speaking to, to Jews, who are their very identity is wrapped up in practicing righteousness as detailed in the Mosaic law. So if you read Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you'll see God explicitly telling his people, you are a people set apart, and you will set yourself apart from other nations by obeying my commands. You are holy. You are set apart. You're a nation that obeys my commands. It's who you are. And so their their national identity is tied up with practicing righteousness, obedience, obedience, To the law, that was something that they thought of as very important. It's very central to their daily lives and so central that their religious leaders would even go around monitoring the people to make sure they were indeed practicing the righteousness commanded in the law. So you remember the story when Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath, or you remember the story where where Jesus' disciples pick some grains of wheat out of a field on the Sabbath, Remember what happens, what happened in both of those cases, Pharisees, these religious leaders came out of nowhere and they're like, you know, religious mall cops following Jesus around like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Hey, you can't you can't pick grains of wheat on the Sabbath. That's work. Hey, you guys, you're not doing the right thing. Boo, boo, boo. You guys are being bad, you know, and then that was that was apparently a normal practice. These guys would keep watch in their minds. They're thinking. The Pharisees are thinking, hey, we're keeping us a set-apart nation. We're upholding the holiness of our, of our nation. And so as you did poorly, they would condemn you. As you did poorly, as you didn't uphold or practice righteousness appropriately, they would scold you, denounce you. But if you did well, well, then you were praised. You were, you were marked as this outstanding citizen. Everyone in your community, you'd have a certain reputation around town as an, as an upright person. So your actions were observed, not just by religious leaders, but, not, but your entire community as well. And over time, you would be conditioned. You would, be, you would learn to act around people in such a way that got you praise rather than condemnation. Over time, you'd learn how to act to ensure that you would receive this reward of praise and acceptance and applause, and you'd avoid acting in such a way that would earn you condemnation and rejection and scorn, right? That's like basic socialization. You know, this isn't something foreign to us. This is, we're sort of hardwired to operate this way. And it shows up pretty early. I mean, you see it even in your, in your kids. You know, so I've, we'll be at somebody's house. I've heard the parents of preschoolers sort of say this mantra, this like universal saying, kids will be over and they're playing in a playroom or something. And you hear all of this, all of this like crashing and thuds, sounds like skulls are hitting the wall. And there's this constant sound. And parents will say this little universal mantra, I'll only get nervous if things get quiet, right? All the loud crashing and thuds, those don't bother me. But if they get quiet, then I know they're up to something. And that comes from experience. Because if kids are doing something they're not supposed to, if they're going to break a rule, they're going to be very quiet about it. They've learned how to conceal the things, quietly do the things that won't, that'll not get them into trouble. And then they're very loud about the things that will get them praise. You know, look how fast I can run. You know, watch what I can do. And they, that's, they'll, they'll do those things in front of you. So they get praise. But the things that they don't, they don't want you to know about, they're very quiet about. They've learned to conceal and so they're these little self-promoters. Look at how good I am. See me. Look at, look at all the good things so they can hear you say, great job, buddy. Y'all, wow, you're so fast. That's amazing. And we all grow up. We're those same little kids. We grow up to be these good self-promoters. We're our own marketing agency, knowing exactly what things will be advantageous to show to other people. Just read your resume. And what things, nah, to conceal from other people. You say, you know, if I show this, I know they'll think well of me. But if I show this, I know they won't. So don't pay attention to that. This is me. This is who I am. This is everything about me you need to know. The strategy of living, it infiltrates almost every aspect of our lives. We've become professionals at knowing how to handle ourselves in front of our, our jury of peers. And even worse, we're so good at it, We're quick to point out when people aren't doing as well as we think they ought to be doing, right? Christians especially are good at this. This is all over churches and church culture. We've become the Pharisees. We're running around, you know, the watchdogs. You have all these. Blog. We're running around a blog about, you know, this is all the problems of churches these days. We're ready to point out every compromise of the gospel. We make these huge claims, saying, "Good thing I'm out here to sort out Christianity. Look at all the good I'm doing. I'm here. I'm a watchdog, and I'm going to take care of this. All the while, doing everything in our power to keep this from coming into the light. To conceal. We want the praise. We don't want the rebuke." And so I say all of that to point out our context is not very different from Jesus' audience. We actually care a lot. We think very highly of how our righteous acts are seen by others. With that being said, now heed Jesus' warning. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven obeying the commands of God in order to be seen by others, like that's your motivation. Look at my holiness. Look at this evidence of my righteousness. Let me prove it to you. Beware. That's dangerous. Beware. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, us evangelicals, we're uncomfortable with the word reward. As I've been saying that, you've been like, I don't do it for a reward. It's all grace. Yes, You know, if you act rightly, you'll be rewarded for your works. That's not something that we like to talk about. But we're not talking about salvation by works here. Rather, there is always a reward for obeying your creator, for being what you were created to be. When God says in Deuteronomy 12, 28, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, well, why should we, God? That it may go well with you. And your children, after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, your God. Obeying your creator leads to reward. Rewards are not evil. And if you think so, you're going to have to square that with the reality that Jesus talks about the reward, the heavenly reward of righteousness frequently throughout the Gospels. We've already seen this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why should I, Jesus? For your reward is great in heaven. for So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As you endure persecution on account of Jesus, there's something that ought to draw you away from the despair and into rejoicing. And what is that? That your reward is great in heaven. Luke 6.35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And that being what you do, Then your reward will be great, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is not afraid to talk about rewards for practicing righteousness, for abiding in him, obeying his word. But, and here's the distinction that Jesus is trying to make here, not all rewards are created equal. And when you chase after these rewards, you can't serve two masters. When you chase the reward of public recognition, practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, you're running in the opposite direction of the reward from your Father in heaven. So he says, beware. Beware of chasing the reward of public recognition. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, he uses this analogy of marriage to explain how these rewards are qualitatively different from one another. And I really like his analogy, but the way he talks about it is incredibly confusing. So I'm not trying to plagiarize him. I'm just doing a better job than he does. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk about my marriage instead, OK? <clears throat> Kelsey and I started dating. Uh, Kelsey's the name of my wife. We started dating uh, back in high school. And we grew up together. We've known each other for a long time. But when I first began to think, hey, this, this gal's pretty great, uh, I did the brave thing that all uh, real men do uh, when I wanted to date her, is I asked her friend to ask her if she might be possibly interested in dating me, to which Kelsey replied, Timmy, which is why people knew me. My name's Tim. Timmy, oh, he's like a brother to me. Like, oh, great. That's great. So my heart was crushed, you know, on the floor. But, you know, patience, you know, I, I kept talking with her. We kept being friends. And we kept, this relationship continued to grow. We just, we were really close friends. And before we knew it, we're like talking on the phone for hours about nothing, just about our day, things we saw, like, oh, yeah. And then it, just for hours. And there came a time eventually where we said, hey, are you talking to other people for hours on the phone like this? Because my feelings would kind of be hurt if that's what you were doing. We are both like, no. i like, no, I don't want to talk to anybody else like this. So it was like, it sounds like we're dating. And it's like, yeah, I think we're dating. Yeah. So we made it MySpace official, okay, in a relationship, you know. (laughs) So it was very important. So eventually my thought was i need to marry this girl you know i like to be around her i have to marry her i love kelsey and being in her presence is joy and lightness i feel weighed down everywhere else everything else feels like heaviness but when i'm around her things just lift away man i'm not, not going to cry <clears throat> Whew. read the script okay mm. so when i married kelsey She is that reward. I'm marrying her for her. She is the reward. Relationship, nearness to her. She's the reward, and she continues to be the reward. But there are other rewards in marriage. We have three beautiful kids, and those are amazing rewards. We both work. We both have income, so we have dual income, so we're blessed with cash. You know, (laughs) there's lots of rewards that come with marriage. But I didn't marry. Those rewards in our marriage are byproducts of the true reward. Those are the reasons I got married. I didn't marry Kelsey so that one day we could have dual incomes. And I, didn't, I didn't marry Kelsey so we could have kids. Because what would happen to our marriage, how, how crazy would that be if I was like, oh, she doesn't, she's not really earning as much as I'd like so I can buy a boat or whatever. What happens to our marriage that would be so destructive? Because I'm exchanging the byproduct and the source. Kelsey is the reward. God mercifully gives in a marriage beautiful, wonderful rewards. A person that will listen to your problems and watch a movie with, with you. And you have kids, raise babies, and you can you know cook together. All these great rewards. But at the end of the day, those are all byproducts of the reward. The reward is her, my wife. Likewise. Doing what God commands according to the covenant he made with us, this relationship with God, it has all sorts of rewards. Practicing righteousness has a bunch of rewards, but public recognition is a byproduct, one that's not even guaranteed. It's a byproduct of the true reward, the person of the Father. God is the reward of practicing righteousness. And if you chase the byproduct, if you pursue being adored by your peers, having a reputation of being holy and righteous, you're confusing the product and the source. And you're chasing a small, not even guaranteed byproduct of righteous living and making that lesser reward your God. It's really idolatry. Therefore, Jesus says, beware, because investing your energies toward the reward of public recognition will destroy you. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Why, you ask? Three reasons. I could list more, but three seems to be the preferred number of points. (laughs) Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them because the reward of public recognition is not eternal. The reward of public recognition is enslaving And the reward of public recognition destroys you. The reward of public recognition is not eternal. It is enslaving, and ultimately, it destroys you. So first, the reward of public recognition is not eternal. God is eternal. Public recognition is not. It's temporary. It's sometimes incredibly short-lived. I could just list names to demonstrate the point that being known as an awesome person doesn't last. Bill Cosby right? Michael Jackson, okay? Well, I can do it with the church. Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Just Google the Southern Baptist Convention and see what comes up. Being known as righteous is not eternal. You know why? Because Christianity is founded on the idea that we're all sinners, that we're all unrighteous. But when you practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others, you will also begin to conceal unrighteousness So that it is not seen by others. And sooner or later, despite all your efforts, your sin will be exposed. And you'll find that public recognition is not eternal. Jesus makes this point throughout chapter 6. Matthew 6, 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received, past tense, their reward. People see them pray. They say, wow, what a righteous, amazing person. That prayer was amazing. And for the moment, that's the reward. They've received their reward. And again, Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, and that's it. Temporary, not eternal, momentary. Which is why Jesus immediately says, after he says, don't try to practice giving to impress other people. Don't tr- practice prayer in order to have public, be publicly recognized as righteous. Don't fast in order to be seen by other people. Matthew six nineteen through 20. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Your reputation can be destroyed. People thinking of you as a righteous person because of your public displays of righteousness, they'll forget about you because it's so momentary, or they'll find out that you're not as righteous as you've led them them to believe. And there your reward will be destroyed. The reward of public recognition is not eternal. So seek a reward instead that is. But also, the reward of public recognition is eternal. Enslaving. It is enslaving because you're at the mercy of your peers. You have to keep up this public image of yourself. If you care a lot about your reputation, you always have to be on your guard to maintain this public image, always having to market yourself. And you develop habits through trial and error of how to speak, what gets you the praise that you're wanting, and what gets your righteousness doubted. And you become a slave to your peers making sure you cover your tracks, always on guard, always ready to defend your reputation should the necessity arise. When public recognition is your reward, you have to. Otherwise, your reputation might be harmed, and then what would you lose? Your reward. You'll be anxious about what others think of you. You'll be depressed by your inability to change their minds. You'll lose sleep over your lack of control. You'll get angry when other people's righteousness is applauded, but yours isn't. And your work will never be through. There will always be a new display of righteousness to perform or a new defense to give for your reputation. The reward of public recognition enslaves you. Don't chase it. Beware. It enslaves you to this ever-changing opinions of others. They become the directors of your life. The reward of public recognition is not eternal. It enslaves you. And finally, the reward of public recognition destroys you, destroys you. There's the public you, and there's the rest of you. And when you build habits or strategies of navigating your life, which consists of showing what is righteous and concealing what is not, you become something you're not over time. You become someone that. You're not. You begin to believe that yourself, which includes parts of you that other people don't like, that includes unrighteous behavior, because we're all sinners, saved by grace. You begin to adapt, always becoming not who God created you to be, but you conform yourself to the image of whatever you believe will be most marketable to those around you. And you lose yourself in the process. When you watch these crazy documentaries on Netflix of people escaping a cult, they all say the same thing. I lost myself. I don't know what happened to me. I wanted so badly to to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be recognized. And I lost myself in the process. Listen, God has created you with certain propensities, certain gifts, certain strengths, certain weaknesses, all for what purpose? His glory, for His glory, for His praise. That's what you were made for. But when you seek that praise, When you chase the reward of public recognition, that's not what you were made for. And the only way to sustain the chase and continue to receive that reward is to destroy what is actually true about you. Mold yourself into something you're not. Destroy what's true, like destroying evidence of a crime, and you lose yourself. You destroy yourself so people don't find out who you really are, so you don't lose what you see as the greatest reward. So for these reasons, Jesus is imploring his disciples, and I think he's imploring us this morning, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Don't devote your righteous acts to the idol of public recognition. Beware. There's a greater reward, one from your Father who is in heaven. And so that will be our theme for the next few weeks. Jesus is going to apply this warning to the three examples. Today, giving to the poor. These are all examples of places where people in his culture would be tempted to display their righteousness quite openly. Today, we talk about giving to the poor. Next week, talking about prayer. The next week, talking about fasting. Jesus is not going to tell his disciples to stop practicing these disciplines, but rather to practice them not to be approved by the Pharisees, Or not to be seen as a righteous person by their peers, not for public recognition, but instead simply for the reward of the Father, of your heavenly Father. So that being said, let's move on to verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That sounds familiar. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, first off, just notice that Jesus says, when, not if, you give to the needy. Jesus assumes you're giving to the poor, to the needy already. He isn't commanding you to give to the poor here because he's assuming that it's so foundational that you're already doing it. Giving to the poor, providing for those among you who are in a less privileged position in need of money and resources that you possess is foundational to the Christian life. Now, I don't mean your charitable tax write-off. I mean, I'm talking about bearing the burdens of the body bearing the burdens of your brothers and sisters, bearing the burden of those among us here who are in need. Is that foundational to your Christian walk? Jesus thinks it's such a given. He doesn't command it here. He just assumes it. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you they have received their reward now I think Jesus is just making a joke here with the whole trumpet thing uh, some people like John Calvin and others throughout history have suggested that people literally would go around like there would be these clubs and they would gather together and say "Hey it's the first Sunday of the month let's go to the streets and give out money to the poor and so they would all get together put on their you know their best looking clothes and go Come get your money, you who are poor. That's, that's what Calvin thinks, but there's no historical evidence of that. Rather, that uh, sounds, sounds fun. You could believe it. What we do know, though, is that trumpets were used to announce important events. Okay, really important events. Announcing a new king. Announcing that a battle had been won abroad, you would use a trumpet. And so I think Jesus is giving us this great picture of someone who's going to the synagogue or walking along the streets, both very public venues, saying, attention, everyone, I'm giving to the poor. That's what I think he's saying. It's this ridiculous picture of someone, look at me, I'm giving to the needy. You're welcome. And trying to literally toot their own horn. And so I don't know what the modern equivalent of like the synagogue and the streets is. A synagogue being the church foyer maybe. The streets being Facebook or Twitter. You know, look at me. Look at how I'm giving to the poor. I'm passionate about justice. That's why I'm posting this. Right? And they're hoping everybody's like, oh, look, it's Trumpet Man. We love, trumpet man, blessing the poor and all of us with his presence, right? Jesus says, trumpet man has already received his reward. Public recognition, that's it. A reward that's temporary, it could be destroyed, a reward that enslaves you, a reward that destroys you. When you give to the poor in such a way that you want others to see your generosity, that that there will be the totality of your reward for your act of righteousness. And as soon as the applause ends, as soon as the, play, the praise ends, so will end the reward. The clock starts ticking again for you to post or for you to keep yourself in the eye of the people whose praise you long for and to give and show how much you're giving and be so generous, the clock just starts ticking. Then comes the anxiety. You got you to gotta have to start figuring out how to get your next hit. And so what ought you to do instead? Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret secret will reward you. It says, when you give, flee, run from the reward of public recognition. Run in the opposite direction. What's the opposite of public? Secret. Give in secret. Again, Jesus gives another extreme illustration The opposite of Trumpet Man says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So if you imagine your hands are two creatures, right, with minds of their own, the ability to see, what would your hands be looking at all day, day in and day out? Each other. They're always looking at each other. They're always staring at each other each and every day. That's what your left hand and your right hand, that's, that's what's in their vision. What would the rest of today look like if you were going to attempt to keep your right hand from ever entering the sight of your left hand? That would be quite the commitment, right? Even in this sermon, I don't even know how to do that. I talk with my hands a lot, and I would just have to to keep them out of, it's hard, it's difficult. It's like, oh, there's a bit of my thumb, oh no. It takes a lot of commitment. They're always looking out for each other. And likewise, it would take a lot of commitment Especially with Pharisees and religious leaders in your community looking at everything you're doing, ready to praise or condemn, it would take a lot of intentionality to pull off keeping your giving to the poor, to the needy, a secret. And here's Jesus' point He's not saying you've done something wrong if someone finds out about your giving to the poor. You know, if you're like giving, you're like, here you go, this is for you. Oh, no, he saw it. Like, it's ruined, and now it's evil, and this is public recognition. And, I'm going to have to do it again, you know? That's not what Jesus, that's not what he's saying. Instead, once your giving is a secret, Jesus is emphasizing there's only one who can see it. There's only one person who can see your giving once it is a secret, and that's your Father in heaven. And once he's the only witness, if he were the only witness to all of your righteous living for the rest of your life, would you be okay with that? Would you be satisfied with that? Would you still choose to live righteously, if it didn't come with any social benefit. Let me say it this way. If everyone around you believed that you were wicked, you were just a terrible nobody, but your Father in heaven was the only one who saw the secret righteousness of your life, could you live with that? Could you live with not having to defend yourself? Could you be comforted if God was your only witness? Jesus says to take extreme measures, instead of taking extreme measures to show off how generous you are by blowing a trumpet, do the opposite. Take extreme measures to ensure that God is the only witness that you care about, and trust that his recognition is far more valuable than that of your peers. In other words, seek the reward that comes from him to satisfy your desire for a reward. Everyone wants to be rewarded, but the reward of your heavenly father is far more valuable than investing your energies in a good reputation. And so I want to end by talking about this reward now. I kind of went through the reward of public recognition. I want to end by talking about the reward of the Father. And think back to me talking about Kelsey. I said that Kelsey herself is my reward in our marriage. Not the kids she gives. Those are byproducts that are wonderful. I love my kids. Love your kids. But Kelsey, is, is, she's the reason I married her. And likewise, the Father is our reward. He gives us himself. The reward of, of the Father. In other words, it's not a what, it's a who. It's not eternal life. It's not peace. It's not joy. Those are actually byproducts. He, the person, is the reward. And he is the source of all those good things. He's the source of every good thing. He sent his son to cleanse us, dwell among us. He's given his spirit to dwell in us, and he gives us an eternal hope that one day we'll hear these words from Revelation 21. Say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, even your great public recognition that you worked so hard for, have passed away. They're done. The reward of the Father is literally the opposite of the reward of public recognition. Because whereas the reward of public recognition is temporary, enslaving, and it destroys you, the reward of the Father is eternal. It's freeing, and it sanctifies you. So listen, the reward of the Father is eternal, the Father who sees in secret, who knows your every thought, knows your every sin, knows your every failing. And he sent his son not just to die for your public transgression but for the secret as well. All your sin, past, present, and future, paid for in full in Christ. And God himself is eternal. There is no variation or shadow due to change with God. Therefore, your secret reputation before him through Christ is eternally spotless, forgiven. Nothing can change his mind. He already knows your worst. And knowing your worst, he paid your debt 2,000 years ago. And the debt's never going to need to be collected again. It's eternally paid for. So don't invest energy into the praise of men. Rather, lay up for yourself an eternal treasure in heaven, practicing your righteousness, content as if he was the only witness. Yes, that will leave you sorrowful in this life. Yes, in this life, you will not feel that immediate encouragement, gratification, of public recognition, but as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25 through 26, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The reward of the Father is eternal, not profiting the whole world, having the greatest reputation in the whole world, The Father's reward is eternal, and it cannot be destroyed. Nothing can destroy your reward, as we saw earlier in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The reward of the Father is eternal, and it cannot be destroyed, but also... The reward of the Father is freeing. It's freeing. You don't have to be anxious about what others think about you because you can rest in what God thinks of you. You don't have to worry about your inability to impress your peers or change the mind of your peers. You can't change God's mind either, and that's a really good thing because when it comes time to confess unrighteousness, what's going to stop you? God sees in secret. He knows your sin. So you can stand up and readily admit your need for a Savior rather than enslaving yourself to constantly defending your reputation. You see how freeing that is. Someone says something untrue about you. You don't have to rush to correct the story. You can rest knowing the Father's your defender. Father sees in secret. That's how you're empowered to turn the other cheek. As we read a couple weeks ago, you'll never turn the other cheek so long as you're chasing public recognition. You You can't do it. But the reward of the Father is not just this eternal rest that comes when Jesus returns. This reward is something that gives you rest today. Think of the rest that you would find if you weren't just trying so hard to be thought well of by the people around you. You probably wouldn't lose as much sleep over your lack of control of people's perception of you. And you probably wouldn't get so upset when other people's righteousness is applauded, but yours isn't. And you probably won't have to work so hard to prove to everyone that you're an upstanding model of the Christian life. When your reward is the Father, you're not a slave, you're free. You're free, free to bring into the light, free to bring into the light what you would otherwise conceal. Free from the enslaving opinions of your peers. So the reward of the Father is eternal. It's freeing. And finally, last point, the reward of the Father, it doesn't destroy you. It sanctifies you. Whereas the reward of public recognition requires you to destroy or at best conceal parts of yourself, the reward of the Father grows you builds you up into the image of Christ, draws the darkness out into the light. There's nothing that's off limits when it comes to the work of sanctification. Some of you refuse to let darkness in your life out because you think it'll cost you a reward, that to no longer conceal embarrassing parts of your life or to no longer conceal your mistakes or to no longer conceal places where you've been wicked, you've bought into the lie that if I take ownership of those things, it'll cost me too much. Listen, it will cost you your reputation at worst. But that's not worth clinging so tightly to. That's not worth holding on so tightly because one day that reputation you work so hard to uphold will pass away. Clinging to that stuff that will destroy you, all of that stuff will one day pass away, but the reward of the Father, secret obedience that doesn't need Facebook likes, sanctifies you, makes you more and more like Jesus to the glory of God, not the glory of yourself. That's why you were ultimately created. So walk in the freedom of Christ, the freedom to no longer feel this need to conceal what's bad. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but I did. I don't want us to feel this need to, to hide what's true and only promote what's good about us. Rather, be conformed to the image of Christ through secret obedience for the sake of the reward of the Father, which is far greater than the reward of public recognition. Beware the idolatry of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Instead, when you give, when you practice righteousness and you give to the needy, do so to please your Father, and he will reward you. Let's pray as we transition into a time of communion. God, we thank you that you are so good. We thank you that you give to us this, uh, this eternal reward. We can't even comprehend eternity. We can't comprehend trillions of years from now. We can't comprehend two years from now. But I pray that today, we would not just view, we would see it as the now and not yet. We would see that we are awaiting a reward and we have a reward today. Thank you for the gift of your spirit sanctifying us, causing us to to obey you. We cannot obey you apart from you. Apart Apart from you, we can do nothing. We confess that we need you. We thank you for your grace. I pray that you would help us to meditate that as we now partake of communion. We cannot do anything righteous apart from you. I pray that you would, you would mold us, conform us into the image of Christ. In Christ's name I pray, amen.